Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Steve Phillip. Steve is a suicide prevention and workplace well-being advocate and the director and founder of the Jordan Legacy, an organization whose mission is to be at the forefront of the advancement of mental health towards preventing suicide. Steve got into this line of work after losing his son, Jordan, to suicide in December of 2019. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. No, really appreciate the uh, invitation and uh, good to speak to you today. Of course. Thankful to have you on. Uh, so, Steve, if you could, uh, can you give us a little background on um, your family and, and what Jordan was like as a kid? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Jordan uh, was uh, one of two children, Danielle, his elder sister, who, who now works closely with me. Um, you know, we had a, a pretty stable family family unit through Jordan's growing growing up. Um, uh, we lived in the northwest of, of England. Um, uh, you know, he had good friends. Uh, he was a sensitive child. I think uh, we've often described him. Uh, he could be quite sensitive, but also, you know, was was an energetic lad, very much into his sports. He was a very keen basketball player. And uh, when he was around about seven or eight years old, as a family, we we decided to emigrate to to Canada and, uh, in fact, lived for several years in, in the frozen waste of Winnipeg. It wasn't mm -hmm. always frozen, of course, but uh, yeah. it, it certainly has a reputation and the affectionate uh, nickname of Winterpeg, of course. Um, and, um, you know, that, that helped him really develop his, his sports, love of sports and particularly basketball. And uh, But we made a decision to come back um, in 1997 to the UK, a decision that was a really tough one for Jordan. He was you know, getting that 12, 13 years old age, very important age developed friendships, developed, you know, his personality. He was a Canadian kid, you know, really when he came back to the UK. Um, certainly had some struggles uh, there. Uh, I think with with that, for, for sure, he, he really didn't want to come back. Um, but he went to school, uh, subsequently went on to, to, to university and, um, um, you know, was you know, part of a pretty stable family by uh, his mother and I actually ultimately, um, you know, our marriage did, did fall apart and we we um, separated and ultimately divorced in 2005 and uh, that was a time when Jordan had just gone to to university and in fact we we had to kind of share the news with him on his first half term break if you like uh, when he came back from the northeast of England to yeah. to our home um, and that was you know pretty crucial time in, in his life and I think a very difficult time and um, you know, if we look at that, Jordan went on to uh, have a, a number of roles and positions, but he completed his, his law degree. Uh, he, he went to work in, in London for a period of time. He never followed the path of law specifically. Um, that was something he ultimately decided, interestingly, wasn't the, the right pathway for him. But as he moved through a career and, um, you know, ultimately got on the housing market, bought his own house. And as we get to, you know, his early 30s now, he's he's securing jobs with the, the home office in the UK, working in immigration here as an officer, and then more recently uh, as an officer with uh, what is known as the Independent Office of Police Conduct, the IOPC here. Uh, they essentially investigate as a, as a government body um, any complaints against the, the UK police, police force here. Um, and 
although his mother and I separated, we maintained a very good relationship. Ultimately, I remarried and, and you know, he had a great relationship with his stepmom, uh, a loving sister and family. But in 2015, after some period of recognition, I think, on everyone's part that Jordan was having struggles of some kind, um, he was finally diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety uh, in the May of, of 2015. Um, and, um, you know, the first time he'd opened up, really, and, and, and talked about uh, those issues. Um, and that was the first time I think, you know, I was certainly aware of, of this. Um, and uh, that began a kind of journey for him of um, kind of managing his depression predominantly through antidepressants from the GP. Um, he did have some initial cognitive behavioral therapy uh, in the early days, about a 14-week period. But Jordan wasn't one for uh, going to counselors and therapists, uh, or maybe the right one hadn't appeared for him. But certainly, I was never aware that following that initial CBT therapy of him actually ever going to see a counselor or, or a therapist during the the next four or five years so yeah a little little bit of background on 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 jordan if if, if that's useful yeah uh so you know you talked about may of 2015 i'm curious prior to that uh was there any discussion in high school or college of him having you know mental health struggles or from like a breakup or uh university pressure or anything like that yeah no, no not specific discussions though you know uh, uh, when we look kind of look back you know the, his, his mother certainly was aware that uh, you know on his first return to the uk and going back to school even though he was kind of mixing with a number of old friends you know albeit from five years ago it's quite a young young guy um that um that there was uh that he might have been on the receiving end of some bullying at school we don't know the details of that and that had much to do with the fact that you know he had this strange accent uh you know canadian kid he 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 suddenly had a growth spurt he had a pretty shaved head in keeping with the basketball players of the the, the era there um he'd be the guy that certainly out of school uniform would be wearing basketball jerseys and vests and and and, and different so i think he you know he attracted a little bit of attention uh, at that stage um that was uncomfortable for him he again he had good friends you know so he had a support network we know he did go through a relationship breakout one of the first serious relationships for him uh prior to him going to, to university. We know that was a very difficult period for him. So if you think of coming off the back of leaving Canada, which he didn't want to do, uh, the, the, the pressures of coming back to the UK, that, you know, that relationship and subsequent breakdown, leaving to go to university, the breakup of his you know, parents' marriage. I think, you know, although none of this was talked about and there was no evidence of Jordan displaying specific mental health issues, we know he was sensitive. We know he was quiet. Um, um, but, um, you know, there's certainly no discussions around any specific mental health issues. Yeah. I guess during that 2015 time period, you know, till, um, you know, 2019, you know, what was in terms of you and his relationship with talking about that aspect of his life? Was he open? about dealing with mental health issues or um did he ever use the word 
suicide in any of the discussion he had with you or his mom? No, you know, if, if we look at the dynamics of the relationship, so, um, you know, Jordan uh, during that time was living fairly close to me in, in the Yorkshire area of the UK. His mother lives on the, the northwest uh, coast. So we're looking at a distance of probably, uh, you know, a couple of hours driving, eight, 80 miles here. Um, and um, uh, his mother, interestingly, you know, had for many years was a senior mental health nurse uh, in the UK. Um, she was probably more attuned to signs and concerns um but you have this very difficult role don't you where you know are you the mother or are you the professional mental health nurse from my point of view i worked as a busy consultant that was my my background training and leadership and management and uh, and other areas of consultancy so although jordan and i initially kind of lived together following the separation from his mother um you know we, we were kind of busy and we got we got on with life we go out for a beer and um you know, we, we never had those discussions. And even subsequently, after Jordan had, had left living with me to go and, uh, uh, and live with a girlfriend, when he got to that point in 2015, where he reached a really, really low point, and for the first time admitted and opened up about having uh, issues, you know, I, I remember picking him up from his girlfriend's house and bringing him back to, his, to live with his stepmother and I for a period of time. And seeing this guy, you know, walk out of the house, get in the car, sit next to me with barely a word, you know, rucksack and some clothes, drove home, barely a word. You know, this was someone at his at his lowest ebb. Now, my knowledge of mental health, you know, I talk about this a lot now. Uh, back in those days, I often say it was a good solid two out of 10. You know, I'm probably flattering myself, but I didn't understand, you know, I didn't yeah. understand de depression. Yeah. Um, suicide was never on my radar or, even up until the moment Jordan took his life, I'm not aware that it was on the radar of any family members or friends um, uh, at all. Um, but that started a journey of Jordan from his lowest ebb, going to the GP, getting the antidepressants, going through the CBT and spending a period of, of weeks living with myself and his stepmom, who did a great job kind of talking with Jordan. A lot of times when I'm traveling, you know, around the UK, with, with clients, um, you know, she did a, quite a, an amazing job during that time in, in just having very open discussions with Jordan. There was a huge amount of trust there. Again, you know, she wasn't a mental health expert at all, but but just having that person, maybe slightly detached from mum and dad directly, be able to sit down at the table in the kitchen and just have a chat over a meal and and. You know, he, he was, you know, he very much opened up at that stage. And that saw him actually over the coming weeks with the therapy and the support start to rebuild himself and, and get back out into life and kind of go back to, to work. And that pattern then, really, Anna, through the next four years was one of him being reasonably stable in terms of out there working, holding down relationships, um, you know, coming to the birthday parties and, go, you know, he, he was a difficult guy to get together with. You know, the family would often say, even his sister who also lives on the northwest coast there, um, and they were very close as siblings. You know, she would often say, it's so hard to get Jordan to come over or can we come over and see you? I don't know, I'm busy. And, you know, you kind of look at look at that dynamic and say, how much of that was Jordan protecting himself? How much of that was Jordan protecting us? from what he was going through. Um, 
you know, you'd get him round and to a family event and he was great. He was on good form. He'd go to his friend's weddings and he was the guy with the dance moves, you know, at the weddings. He was the guy that, you know, people say would light up the room and had this aura about him. Good looking guy, you know, six foot plus tall, good, good looking guy, real caring, nurturing kind of individual. He was real, really one for rooting for the underdog. You know, he, he would stand up for you if you were in that position um, as if, you know, he, he was, you were his brother, you know, in, in situations, whoever it was. Um, so, yeah, so that was the pattern, really, that if he then found himself spiraling downwards into depression, he would go back to the GP and the solution was antidepressants. Now, he was someone who didn't like taking them. So the pattern would then be to wean himself off. Yeah. But then again, go low and start the cycle again. And look, I, I'm certainly, you know, we both discussed before coming on air that neither of us are mental health professionals or yeah. psychologists here. But yeah. I've, I'm have i a dad who's learned a lot in the last 31 months. And, you know, one of the things we know about antidepressants is that, you, you, you know, it's really difficult to go through a cycle of going, going on to antidepressants and coming off again because there will always be that initial period when you go back on antidepressants where they're more likely to take you to a lower place before they start to work effectively yeah. and very very tragically uh, in the november of um, 2019 jordan was in that position where he went back had an appointment with the gp the doctor um who i subsequently spoke with um he was in a distressed state during the conversation but apparently the doctor had asked him whether he was considering suicide Jordan said no, end of that conversation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he, but he, there was a 34 year old guy sitting in opposite the doctor in tears at times. You know, if, if that's not a flag, kind, kind of what is. But of course, he got his prescription. And, you know, when I spoke to the GP, he said, uh, you know, when I told him what had happened, he was really upset himself and he said, you know, we have, we have an appointment in two days' time to kind of review how things are going. I said, well, you know, clearly that appointment isn't going to take place now. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's kind of Jordan's dealing with, with depression and uh, as a family, kind of where we were. We, we just didn't really. And just to add to that, Arnav, you know, I think about, you know, the, the, the weeks leading up to Jordan's death where he and I went to concert or watch one of our favorite bands, Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, we were big fans of them yeah. and they came to Leeds. We went to watch them. Uh, we were out, you know, at a special whiskey tasting evening gift that I was given by Jordan's mum for, for my birthday earlier in the summer. And, you know, you knew, you know, your son's struggling, but you don't have any knowledge of mental health issues or how to have the conversation. So your default position is I'll be dad. When we go out for a beer, I'll be dad. I'm not going to ruin the evening or bring the evening down. I'll ask him how he's doing. No, that's an easier. And if he says he's okay, I've ticked that box, haven't I? Yeah, I've, I've kind of done my job. Let's, let's just have a good evening and enjoy the concert and, and let him know you're there. Um, but, you know, where do you take that conversation? You know, where, where do you again draw the line between seeing your son who you don't see every week or necessarily every month and, and, and just having another conversation about his mental health. You know, we knew what Jordan's reaction would be often. And that would be, ah, oh, 
you know, when you started to pressure him and push him, and you, you, you'd see that look on his face and go, hey, you know, don't, don't kind of go there. So we didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, I look back at that with a very different viewpoint now. But, but at the time, I can imagine many families being in that dilemma, if you like, about how, how, do, we, how do we deal with this while still remaining a parent or, or a sister or a brother or whatever? Um, and not pushing too many buttons that might, you know, mess up the relationship or whatever. It's a really difficult situation. Yeah, that's that's extremely tough because, you know, you don't want him feeling like you're, you're always being in like that doctor role. You want him to be, you know, you're, you're his dad. Uh, so that's definitely a very tough line to kind of figure out of where to push and, and where not to. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, and I guess I'm, I'm pressing a little bit here, but, and so, but, you know, as, as, as you've had discussions with, you know, maybe his girlfriend or his sister or his friends, you know, was there any discussion of the word suicide? Did anybody, was anybody aware that he was dealing with that type of thought at all or? No, not that I'm aware of. No, there, yeah. there is there is nobody, um, okay. even his closest friends, uh, at any point. And I've spoken to you know a lot of them in depth. We've been out together and cried together, and you know done all you know kind of things really. And uh, but but there is not one of them that uh, has, has ever said, yeah, Jordan did mention the word suicide. And and you know these were really close friends. You know these, yeah. these were people are messaging him every day. And yes, he would talk about his, his struggles and the depression, uh, but but never was there a single moment. Now, what's really interesting about that is that you could deduce from that that maybe Jordan hadn't considered suicide until very much toward the end uh, of his life. We know differently. And the reason we know differently is that as part of our journey after his death to go back to his house and deal with everything that you've got to deal with, possessions, bills you know just everything you've got to deal with there uh we went up into the loft um and the attic uh, in his house and uh, there were boxes of his his belongings he's recently in the last couple of years moved from a, another house that he owned and, and bought this one um and we found all kinds of things from his basketball trophies and you know birthday cards family cards to for the very first time uh, we we saw his notes from his cbt session um in 2015 you know we had we were never aware of what the conversations were clearly with his therapist because that's confidential but there it was for the for the first time what we also found were partially completed journals really notebooks that would continue for a period of months in a certain year and then curtail so that there wasn't like a full year's journal but we look back at some of the writings in there about his innermost thoughts and what he was going through and there was one diary journal entry from June of 2015. And this was a time where Jordan was just about to turn 30 years old. Um, and I decided that he and I would go on a father, dad, uh, sorry, dad, uh, son trip. And I booked us uh, a holiday away to the Amalfi Coast in Italy, mm. Jordan. And, and we just had the most amazing time. Now, 
Jordan was struggling at that time, of course. It's not long since his diagnosis. Um, he would openly say that he very rarely looked forward to anything. So say if you're looking forward to your friend's wedding this weekend or whatever. No, not really, but I'll I'll go. And his mother had a conversation about the trip that he and I were going on. And she said, are you, you know, really exciting? Are you looking forward to it? And he said, no. I'm just, he didn't look forward to anything. He openly said that, I don't look forward to anything. And yet, in his own words to his mother afterwards, it was the best trip he'd ever been on. And we just had a great time. So put that in context. We're reading a journal entry from June, which is when we went to Italy, uh, written probably just before we went, maybe, or around that time. And it, there was the line. I remember reading out to the family here in the, in the house uh, when we were all here, just going through some of the things we brought back from Jordan's home. And, and the line there that said, been researching methods of suicide again today, found this particular method might be a bit difficult to get hold of. And you go, wow. Mm. 2015, four and a half years before he ends his own life. That's the first documented evidence we had that he was researching methods of suicide and looking for means. How long prior to that had he been considering it? Yeah. And yet, yeah, to come back to your question, as far as I'm aware, no one was aware that that was a consideration. Yeah. Was it, was he generally, did he struggle to ask for help? I think he, I, I don't know whether he, he, he didn't ask for help. I, th I think, yeah. you know, I, I think I would look at that and say he, he didn't ask for help. He was a very private, very proud guy. We know a lot of men, young men that, yeah. that are like that, sadly. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's little doubt in my mind that he didn't ever want to be a burden to other people. And that's something I've heard from, from many people that have lost loved ones and, the suicide notes I've read from other people. Um, that um, so I think there was an element of not wanting to be a burden to to anyone, and and just I'll get on with it and I'll 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 deal with it. Um, so I think there was there was some some of that involved as well, really. Yeah. Is is there you know obviously there may be parents that listen to this who you know have a child that deals with mental health issues and they're kind of listening to these you know, maybe in the same boat as you, they don't know what mental health or depression and things like, I mean, it wasn't something that they grew up on. It's something that's recently gotten a lot more uh, education and traction. Um, you know, for that parent where they're, you know, maybe now their child has become, um, you know, clinically diagnosed with something, um, do you have any piece of advice for them um, as you look at your own journey? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I have a lot of these conversations and just had a very similar conversation just a few days ago with, with somebody I know who's concerned about her 19-year-old um, son and not being clinically diagnosed, but we, we know he you know, has anxiety and, and struggles. Um, um, so I have many of these uh, these conversations and have done over the last 31 months uh, with concerned parents and um, you know I think what I'm able to do through a level of knowledge I've built you know I deliver many talks to organizations and companies um, you know I, I again I'm not a mental health professional I have my mental health first aid certification here um, and I and I've made sure that any of the advice inverted commas or guidelines that I pro provide through my talks 
are, are well researched and in line with you know the appropriate um, resources that are there. So a lot of my talks are around um, how to spot the signs and and how to have and open up that that conversation and and signpost someone who's struggling. So I use the same approach really. You know, talking with parents, I think you know, firstly, I think you've got to be brave enough to be direct enough with your kids um, and um, what that means is you know very simple kind of three-step process you know I, I use this in my talks AID for, for aid um, you know the first thing is to talk about the activity that you're aware of that is concerning you and that could be changes in patterns of behavior uh, could be the person's tearful a lot of the time. Maybe they're drinking excessively, uh, locking themselves away in their room. But there's a change. You know, you have, what is the activity you've noticed? Be really direct with that and, and just say, you know, Steve, look, I, I want to have a chat with you because I have specifically, you know, observed this activity and behavior. Um, uh, because that's hard to argue with. If you say, look, I'm, I want to have a chat with you because I'm worried about you. What does that mean? Because and the response is likely to be, oh, "Well, I'm okay, I'm 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 fine." But if you're really very specific, you know, I've experienced this activity, this behaviour. Okay. Impact. What is the impact of that? Look, I've, I've noticed the impact it's having on you. You've been a lot more tearful. You've been, you know, certainly a lot more. Re- you know, you're you're reacting very differently to small things. And here's an example. So again, it's about being very specific. Um, I notice the impact it's having on your brother, your sister, you know, your mates, whatever. It is. What is the impact? So if you know, you mentioned the activity, you mentioned the impact. And the third part of aid is the desired outcome. And that's working together towards a next step or a solution or whatever the outcome is. And you can only do that collaboratively. And that is saying, OK, so this is what I've observed. This is what I think is, is happening to you and those around you. Um, tell me what's going on for you. Just, just to explain to me what, how how is this impacting on you uh, as well. Help me to kind of understand what's going on. And okay, so what do we do about this? What 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 would you like to do about this? How can I help and support you? And uh, th- those kind of simple frameworks. It's like a toolkit, isn't it? You know, I think if every parent had that really simple toolkit of AID or something similar to that rather than any complex kind of approach and journey. And some of them, I think, get a little too complicated. But being brave enough to sit down and have that conversation, you know, I think that's a really important step. And, and you know, you've got to kind of prepare for that. You you know, you don't suddenly spring it necessarily up on the individual, but you do say, look, I, I want to have a chat with you about something. Have you got a few minutes? You know, make sure you're in a, an environment where you're not going to get interrupted or something like that. But that's the kind of advice that, that I would give. And almost, I'm going to say something, like, almost if you're not overly concerned, I think it's a really important conversation to have with your kids about how you're doing generally. You know, yeah. you might not be worried about suicide or or, you know, that, they're, that they have depression or anxiety, but just generally sometimes just sitting down with our kids and having that kind of conversation just about things you've observed. Of course, the important thing there, Arno, is you need to make the time to observe what's going on and not yeah. be too busy, 
not be too busy with your uh, career or whatever else is is going on. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess as you've talked to, you know, Jordan's friends, you know, Charlotte, Danielle, um, is, is there anything, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if this is a fair question, but obviously is there anything within that last week before December 4th, um, where you guys look back and were like, this was a sign or anything of that nature. Um, as you look back on that, that week before. I, I, th- I think there are some, uh, you know, I can't speak behind, on behalf of, of, of the others, but, you know, I've, I've had WhatsApp messages shared with me, you know, from good friends. And, you know, this was some of the things that were worrying Jordan. He, you know, he had a particular confrontation at, at work with a line manager that, that, that concerned him. So there were, there were clearly pressures. Um, but, you know, if I give, give you one example. So, you know, of, of signs that with the knowledge I have now are signs, but at the time weren't. So a few days possibly uh, now, um, I, you know, I can look back at the WhatsApp message exchange I had with Jordan, but we were having a bit of chat. To, obviously, we were concerned in those final weeks. He was in a much lower position than we'd, we'd seen him for some time. Uh, but I had a WhatsApp conversation, general conversation with Jordan. Uh, and at the end of the conversation, Jordan messaged and, and he just said, uh, OK, now, but look, at least I managed to, to get up this morning uh, have a shave and have a shower. To be honest, that didn't look like it was going to be on the cards, you know, for today. And I remember me just saying something glibly like, well, that's good, George. You know, at least you're getting up and having a wash. And it was almost quite um, lighthearted. Um, well, that's, that's a positive, isn't it? You know what now, with the knowledge that I now have, I'd frame that really differently. I'd be saying, Jordan, are you telling me you haven't got up and had a wash and a shave for the last few days then? And even today looked unlikely. Yeah. Tell you what, I'm coming over. Let's have a coffee. Let's have a talk and see how you're really doing. You know, it's, it's easy to look back with hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. But I think it's also, if you have the knowledge, which is part of what I do through the Jordan legacy and all the work we do to try and educate give people the tools to spot the signs it's, it's just part of the work we do you know that if you are aware of what it is you should be looking out for then it then you're able to take some form of, of preventative action if you're completely unaware of what you should be looking out for then you're going to do what i did and say that's good yeah but it clearly wasn't good you know yeah um you know, we don't need to extensively talk about December 4th, but do you want to just speak about, um, you know, maybe some aspects of your experience and, um, you know, obviously there are people, unfortunately, parents receiving that call today. Um, so as you look back, you know, are there any pieces of advice? Um Gosh, no, no advice really about you know the the moment that it that, that it happens. Um, you know, I think, gosh, you know, we could talk for two two three hours on on that day day mm-hmm. alone. You know, I, you know, I I'm there working you know 140 miles away in my consultancy role with a company. I I get into the car and and immediately 
And on the dashboard is an incoming call from Charlotte, Jordan's girlfriend, who's come home to find the most unimaginable experience of, of her life um, and, of course, ours. Um, so you imagine kind of what goes through your mind at that moment. And so, so of course, we, we, we dealt with all that. Um, we then, you know, you deal with all that happens on that journey home and, and the conversations that you're having with family members and the sharing that news with his mom and his sister and his grandmother. And, you know, you know, so you can imagine what, what that is, is like, um, um, you know, and then the family all gathering at our home that evening, including Charlotte. I mean, Jordan's house is kind of 20 minutes, 25 minutes drive, um, from me here. So of course she was brought over to our house and, uh, um, rather than go back to, uh, South Yorkshire where she, she lived. Um, so, you know, so you can imagine it, it you know, so, someone once described, you know, this experience of suicide happening is, is, is like, it's like a hand grenade going off in your front living room you know it, it is literally that that is is what it's it's like um and i heard someone wants to describe the grief to suicide because any loss is, is hard you know whether you lose a child or um, a loved one of any kind grief is hard but someone said grief to suicide though is, is like grief with the volume turned up and i thought yeah i can relate to, to that terminology um, as well. There's no advice um, I can give in the immediate aftermath um, of that. The only advice I can give is what happens afterwards. And I suppose that leads to, you know, the Jordan legacy, the, you know, the work that we do in a charitable sense to help prevent suicide. You know, if you think of what happened in the immediate weeks following Jordan's death, as we're trying to deal with the chaos and, issues with the the police you know i could tell you stories of driving around for two days around this area of yorkshire trying to find out where they'd taken jordan trying to find the police that were even involved in dealing with his case you know we received a, a i got a mobile number from a a female police officer who was on the scene looking after jordan who left her mobile number who then goes on annual leave and holiday for eight days and doesn't answer a phone so you're thinking well, who am I dealing with, with the police? Where, where, where is Jordan? Where have they taken his body? You know, so, so I'm driving around police stations. You know, yeah. So you think in, in this day and age, yeah, 21st century. Uh, yeah, so, you know, why I'm sharing all this is that three weeks after Jordan's death, you know, I'm a big user of LinkedIn. It was, in fact, my career for 11 and a half years leading up to that moment was uh, I ran my own consultancy practice working with corporate organizations and other businesses, teaching them how to use social media uh, from a business perspective. Uh, that's what I did. I kind of knew LinkedIn inside out and, and Twitter and, and all the other the channels. There. That's exactly what I was doing on that day. I got the, the call with a large automotive group. So I um, decided to write an article, uh, a blog, um, and post it on LinkedIn. It, it's there today for everyone to see, and it's called The Day My Son Took His Own Life. And it, it was to explain what had happened. Um, but the aftermath and the chaos and, and my view was, do other people go through this? You know, are they driving around trying to find their child's body? You know, just, just you know, have they got, yeah. you know, police standing on a doorstep with Charlotte watching them sitting in a police van 
while two of them are laughing and joking on the doorstep, maybe talking about the football that weekend. I don't know. But but is that what happens when someone dies by suicide? So I wrote this article and, and, and the main purpose of that article was if I, I want people to realise the devastation that's left behind. And in doing that, hopefully someone who's considering taking their own life would read it and go, I can't do that. Well, I can tell you that's the effect it had because when I published it, I hesitated before I pushed the publish button. The article went viral. Um, it, it, I had outpourings from psychologists to people that had lost loved ones to suicide, to people that were considering suicide, all kinds of people. Um, I had messages and emails coming into my inbox from people like Ariana Huffington from the Huff Post, you know, the next day. It, it was off the scale. And it was that response, including people saying, can you help me? three weeks after losing my son with no knowledge of <laughs> mental health. But seriously, yeah. I, you know, can you help me? Where I, where I had to go to the family. Yeah. Uh, J- Jordan's mom, a senior mental health nurse, and say, how do I, you know, what do I say? You know, how do I respond? And we, and we ended up with a very simple kind of message of where to signpost people to, the Samaritans in the UK. I didn't even know, I didn't even know what you were supposed to do. Yeah. So I had to kind of, put that in place but but that did lead me to think look i know i had a voice on linkedin i was probably in some respects one of the top trainers and coaches and speakers on linkedin in the uk um i knew i had a voice would i now have a the same you know a different voice on the same platform could i use that voice in any way to make any kind of difference and those seeds literally became the foundation for the Jordan legacy and the work we do now. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously as, as parents, um, you feel a certain responsibility, uh, for your kid. Um, you know, even when they become adults, um, you know, how was, your process with guilt or regret and um, do you have any advice for parents in similar position um, who are feeling guilty? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, you do without question. You're, you know, I've got a good friend of mine, Mike McCarthy, who, you know, we work closely together on a pretty big initiative we're working on here in the UK at the moment called the Baton of Hope. And, uh, um, you know, uh, we appeared both of us on, uh, BBC Breakfast News uh, just uh, 10 days ago. Um, and, you know, Mike said, you know, it's a parent's responsibility to look after the kids and look out for the kids. You know, this, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to protect our kids. And then suddenly we're thrust into this position where we haven't been able to. So I think you you do feel uh, all kinds of emotions. You, you're bound to um, from from initial anger, maybe. Uh, uh, why have you done this? That That disappeared very quickly for me um to to the confusion but but the guilt is part of it um what more could i have done um but i think it's really important how you know i frame my feelings around this this issue and how i managed to to kind of deal with them uh compartmentalize them maybe in some ways so what i will say is that even to this day i feel a um i I won't use the word guilt but 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 there are things I could have done differently. 
through Jordan's life. Okay, um, I think we can all look at parent from parenthood and say the things we could have done differently. Um, there are definitely things I look back at in terms of how busy I was through my life, um, how much time I really spent understanding what Jordan was going through, um, and we'll put my hands up and say there were things I could have done a lot better. Does that mean I feel guilty? And, and I'm going to say no. But what I'm going to say is I could have been much better prepared. I could have had a much better toolkit of knowledge. I could have made the time. Um, and so there are regrets. I think there are regrets that I, that I focused so much on what I was trying to achieve in, in life. Yes, I was there. Yes, I've heard from friends of Jordan's who would say, that I was the best dad, that, that I, you know, that he looked up to me in all kinds of ways. And in his suicide note to us, he said you were the best parent to family I could have could have had. So I've heard, you know, anecdotal conversations, but that's not enough for me. You know, I I I do know there were things I could have done differently and better as a parent to be there for my son. I can't carry the guilt because that's not healthy. But I can now go out to, to parents and, and, and others and say, look, equip yourself with the knowledge. Understand about mental health, because one in four people in the UK experience mental health illnesses of one kind or another. We are losing 17 people every week to suicide in this country. 200 pre-high school kids every year in this country take their own lives. If you think this won't come knocking on your door, then you've got to change your mindset. You've got to be prepared. Look, you would think nothing of taking your child to the dentist or the dental hygienist to look after their teeth. It's part of what we, we do. Take your teeth, otherwise they'll fall out. Yeah. What, are you, what are you doing about your kid's mental health? What are you, what are you doing? What, what are your plans to, to equip your knowledge uh, and, and you know, kind of look out for them in, in that respect from really from an early age? So I think I'd say to all parents, Take an interest in mental health. Equip yourself with the basic knowledge and understanding of what the risks might be. Uh, don't worry yourself and lose sleep overnight suddenly, but you know because of this. But be prepared, as we said earlier, to every so often sit down with your children and ask them the questions about what's going on. You know, for you, how are you doing really? And look, you know, we're using this a lot over here. I don't know about, you know, over your, your side of, of the world, but, you know, we've, we've got into a kind of a mantra here where it's not enough just to ask someone, how are you doing? Because everyone's going to put a smile on their face and say, I'm fine. And if they do, you go back to them and say, okay, but look, how are you really doing? We've got to ask it twice. And, and that second question has got to be framed a little differently. And if we start to do that more often, because I think most of us ask how you're doing as an extension of hello. We don't really want the answer. We're just being polite. Well, we've got to stop being polite and we've got to start genuinely taking an interest in our kids' mental health and the mental health of our loved ones and friends and colleagues. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. Um, you know, again, Steve, you know, for you, um, and for parents out there in similar positions, right? Sleeping might be tough and things of that nature. I'm curious if you um, 
like what have you done for your like have you joined a support group have you started seeing a mental health professional what have you done for yourself or that has kind of helped um with yeah the process it, it, it's interesting I, I know what i've done for myself and i'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second sleep yeah. is critical and, and and i will go back to some of the signs with jordan he was struggling to sleep uh, you know some real clear clear signs there um in the early stages following Jordan's death, we all as a family struggled with, with sleep. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we all ended up with the same um, sleeping uh, medication of choice uh, amongst the family. Um, and um, uh, that was important because clearly, you know, I, I suffered with uh, physical trauma for some months afterwards and that would manifest itself in violent head twitches um, and also just um, uh, body reactions I, I i would call them convulsions that was i knew it wasn't the right word every time i use it and I've, I've never found a word to explain it but you, you can imagine me standing at the, the kitchen sink doing the dishes and it, and someone has punched you in the midriff and knock you back two feet that that's what i would it would happen to me in bed it would happen anywhere at all um uh, and i did at the behest of the family because i was kind of looking after everyone else and, and looking after the effects of, but and I went for some counselling and, you know, I, I consider myself to be quite a, a self-aware individual, um, quite a resilient type of guy in many respects. So I went along for the counselling, had the initial session. It was interesting. I went back for the second one. And it was kind of, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing fine. And yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with Jordan's affairs and I've written this article and, and I'm doing this and I'm getting up and yeah, I'm kind of sleeping okay now, still using sleeping medication occasionally. And she said, well, you know, you seem to be doing remarkably well. And funnily enough, the doctor I saw said the same thing when I got the sleeping medication. And I just looked at her, I said, you know what, I am. I'm a kind of getting on. And and to be honest, I, I don't know why I'm coming here. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I literally said, I, I look, you're a really nice person and these are really great chats. Um, but I kind of, I don't know why I'm here at the moment because I, I'm kind of functioning. And, and I said, well, that's fine. You know, and if you ever want to come back, you, you can do. And kind of half an hour into the second session, we kind of said farewell, shook hands, and off I went. But here's how I'm managing it, I believe. that Almost immediately after Jordan's death, I had a purpose. The purpose was to try and make some sense out of what had happened. The purpose was also I knew there were practical, logistical things had to be dealt with. And I'm a very practical, logistical type of person. So from organizing funerals to dealing with coroner's offices, um, uh, the police, all kinds of things. I had that sense of purpose, trying to keep the, the family support, do whatever I could do there. And then almost immediately that I'd written that article that I published that I referred to before, I suddenly had this responsibility to, to respond and, and, and to, to people that were reaching out to me. That led me in turn to the Jordan legacy and what could I start to do, if anything, to, to learn more about mental health, to learn more about suicide, and then in some ways link up with people in an already reasonably large network that I had um to try and make a difference so i think the advice to to everyone who's going through this you know we're talking maybe parents specifically here but but friends you know the ripple effect of suicide on, on average will impact indirectly or directly another 135 people 
That's the stat. Um, what can you do? You can sit on a sofa with a bottle and drink yourself into oblivion. And that was, that was an option. And a friend of mine said this you know, once. He said, this is the choice that you have. Or you can get out there and you can do something. And the advice is find some sense of purpose out of this mess. Whatever that is, get yourself up, get out there. And it might not be starting a charity or, or doing whatever it is. It might be just a sense of purpose. Is I'm just going to run myself like a lunatic for five kilometers, 10 kilometers till I collapse in a heap somewhere. And I'm going to do that every day. You know, it could be, but find some kind of purpose that gets you up, gets you moving, um, gives you something to aim for, whatever that might be. Um, and that might not be reading books on suicide, by the way, and things that, that I did. You know, that might not be the right journey to, to, to go on. Um, but I think whatever it is for you, find a sense of purpose. And in doing that, that allows you to get up each day, get dressed, get washed, get out there and live a life step by step. Look, you endure a loss to suicide. You never get over it. Um, but that process of enduring does become easier step by step. You know, I, I know that, you know, I'm out delivering a, a talk in front of 50, 60 people last night, an event I was invited to telling my story, you know, just 10 minutes. And there were two moments during that talk where my voice broke and I kind of clung on, um, <laughs> you know, even now, you know, to the, to the talk, but so it never goes away. It, it never goes away. Um, but that sense of purpose kind of carries you through. And last night, that sense of purpose was I had a message to deliver to 50 or 60 people in a room. And that's my job tonight, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, family dynamics are going to change. Um, you know, is there a way or any advice that you have on um, you know, celebrating Jordan's birthday or celebrating, you know, whatever you guys celebrated, celebrated as a family, whether it's Christmas, New Year's or um, whatever, you know, in terms of handling that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned, I mean, it's really appropriate because next Monday is Jordan's birthday, um, the 11th of July. So, you know, that was a, a perfect lead in there, Arnav, really. Um, yeah, and I can tell you how we'll spend that day because coincidentally, it also happens to be my grandson's, youngest grandson's birthday. Um, his first name is Samuel. He's That's Jordan's middle name, deliberately chosen. So I'll be going over to spend time with Jordan's sister. Obviously, it's her youngest and, uh, and, and the family over there. Um, and, uh, you know, our ritual will be that because Jordan's ashes are in a, in a grave over in the northwest there where he was brought up originally and where his sister is and his mum, uh, we spend the morning um, at the graveside. We'll be there. It'll be sad, but it's got easier. We'll play some music. We'll play some of Jordan's favourite tunes um, and uh, we'll, we'll lay some things on, on the grave and, and be there for Jordan's birthday and leave a card and everything that we do. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we'll have a very lively six-year-old that will keep us entertained for his birthday. And, and look, kids kids are a real leveller, aren't they? Because the first time that happened in 2020, the first birthday, I remember it was a, it was a summer's day, but it was wet. It was miserable. It was pretty great. 
And we were all standing around very quietly around the graveside in the morning. And young Samuel is, is there with his older brother. And uh, um, we sat there, there were, we were standing there, there were tears. And we were very quiet afterwards, a bit of music playing. And then Samuel looked up at his mum, Daniel, uh, Jordan's sister, and just looked up. He said, I'm bored. He said, can we go home and have my party now? <laughs> and we just started laughing. Yeah. And, and I think from that moment on, that you, you, it's that moment, isn't it, where you suddenly go, there are still things to celebrate in life and still, you know, things that we have, can have hope for. And I think that moment was a real light bulb moment for us. So, yeah, you know, Christmases are, are tough. You know, Father's Day just here in the UK, you know, it's, you know, I've got a daughter sending me a wonderful card of Jordan, with a photograph of Jordan and, and, and Danielle and I on it. Um, yeah, that's hard and, and it's lovely at the same time. You know, I have a memory box of things from Jordan here and all the cards. And my ritual is that I will take out a different card each time for my birthday and which happens to be tomorrow actually i've forgotten that that's that's tomorrow <laughs> uh, well um but but I, a card will yeah. come out of the box from jordan it will go on the mantelpiece in in the lounge and yeah. um you know he God. He, you know he won't send me one anymore but you know that's my way of dealing with it so we you know we will still have you know these happy moments and and tinge with sadness but but that's the that's the journey kind of going forward now really that's 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 what life is and but you you've got to find those you know moments of hope and 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 still you know celebrate the life um and i think we're able to do that more now i don't think we're doing it enough yet we had a huge life celebration event last august um you know wonderful uh, friend and lady who put on a great event in her huge garden she has and we had a band from another great friend of mine who's a great musician and uh, brought lots of people uh, together and and you know and, and that was deliberately to celebrate jordan's life so i think you know my advice is that that look whatever the event is you're going to have a moment of sadness and reflection okay you can't ignore it but make sure that event also has some some upbeat moments of hope that you're going to celebrate something there as well and make sure that that, that is the second half of the event and, and and the day i think that's that's really really important that you do that look jordan had 34 years look he was a good looking lovely guy who achieved way more than he knew he he or believed he achieved um and i think it would be unfair on him um, and all of us not to celebrate that relationship and, the, and that life that, that he had and to continually only focus on suicide and, and, and that loss. Um, that makes it sound like that's very easy to do. It's not. And I think we as a family probably have to get better at that because we, we are still reflecting 31 months on, on the event and, and the loss um, and not enough on the life that was lived maybe that is the next part of the journey for us no i think that makes sense because i think at its whole you know i can't speak for jordan but he doesn't want you guys to be suffering that's not he wants you guys to be happy and 
um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, again, can't speak for him, but maybe escaping the pain for him um, more than not wanting to live. And, um, you know, I think, you know, some of the things that you said this today, you know, when he was with people, he was joyful. You guys kept him alive and um, things of that nature. Um, one other question I had, Steve, is, um, you know, friends of yours, right, might be listening to this and, um, you know, when they get a beer with you, it's kind of like what we talked about before is, is how much should we push? How much should we ask about that aspect of your life? And how much should we just say, how are you doing? What's going on this week? Yeah, um, look, um, yeah, you know, we, I, I was fortunate that, um, you know, we have some fan, fantastic, fantastic friends. I have some great friends and, you know, we've openly talked and, and you know, cried about stuff. And, and I know this isn't true of everyone who's lost someone to suicide, but one of the things I think I've been really blessed with, and it could be because we were so open very early on about, you know, what happened with Jordan, is that I've never experienced the stigma that a lot of people have said they experienced where friends have crossed the road or not got in touch. Um, you know, I know Danielle, you know, we've got a, a, an internet radio show called Jordan's Place. We've, we've literally recorded the first episode. It airs at 7 p.m. tonight in the UK nice. uh, on, on Yawa Radio. There's a plug for everyone. It's a fortnightly show. And Danielle talks about this because we asked the question and and she said, um, you know, lots of people were really good in reaching out. She said, but there was a thing that did surprise her that one or two um, friends that she thought she might have heard from didn't get in touch. And, and, you know, maybe that was because it was difficult. So I've not experienced anything like that firsthand, quite the opposite. But maybe there are one or two people that I have, you know, not heard from, but it hasn't registered with me that just felt they weren't able to. But in the main, people, have, I think, have been able to feel very comfortable talking with me about it because I've, you know, been so open and we have been as a family about what, what happened. We've almost given people permission to kind of talk. How am I doing? Um, incredibly busy, busy week. Um, you know, the Jordan legacy work carries on and we work very strategically with government and with communities and businesses around practical solutions to suicide. Um, several weeks uh, ago, at the beginning of this year, we um, announced that we would be collaborating with, with some other um, amazing people on uh, uh, an initiative that uh, has its focus for two weeks during the summer of 2023, which is called Baton of Hope, uh, where a physical baton will be passing through all four nations of the UK and we'll be getting uh, all cities and towns and communities uh, um, around the four nations to put on their own Baton of Hope activities and events. And it has a very simple mission. It is at a massive, massive scale um, to open up the conversation about suicide, to help raise awareness and to uh, look at what practical solutions need to be, be put in place. Uh, it, that's my life at the moment. It's all consuming. It's absolutely huge. Um, uh, yeah, as I say, it's my birthday tomorrow, but it'll be a regular working uh, day. We'll go for a meal in, in the evening, apparently, uh, I've been told. But um, you know, I'll be at my desk tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning and it'll be pretty relentless through through the day um, to, till I finish. So, um, but look, I, I sleep okay. I, I get up, you know, I can watch TV and have a laugh at a program. I can have a laugh and a joke with friends and family. Uh, and then as you've 
experience today there will be moments and they come out of nowhere sometimes you know where it all just comes washing over you but look that's the territory that 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 is it it's, it's about being a human being and all that kind of comes with that i think really yeah um as i look at time i just want to ask two more questions the first one is um you know just as we wrap up is there any lesson or thought or um something that you um kind of want to share on mental health so is that anything of that nature yeah i think you know it's a, it's, a, it's an important message we're sharing through the, the baton of hope we've chosen hope continually as, as a word um is that look most of the conversations most of the research most of the people we've spoken to that have attempted suicide we we know that um for many who've attempted and survived uh, they've gone on to live you know very fulfilling lives and and uh, and have used the word hope themselves so here's one thing we know about suicide even in the darkest darkest moments that suicide is a permanent solution to what is without question a temporary situation it might not feel like that but if we can hold on to that and say there is hope somewhere no matter how desperate you feel but if you take this step that's it there, there is no coming back from that okay so let's let's kind of understand that what we also know is again from the evidence and the research is that most suicides even up to the moment the act is about to happen are preventable okay not all of them we know we will never prevent all suicide even though we use the term of moving toward a zero suicide community we'll always move toward it but it's a heck of a lot better than a government that might say we want to reduce suicide by 10% this year so what are we doing about the other 90% then so if if we can go forward with hope to say look with better education with better systems with better processes in place better preventative solutions most of the suicides we're seeing now are preventable that doesn't help us as far as jordan's loss or anybody else or pat or someone like that um but if we can go forward with that hope then i think we can make a difference the final point just to, to add really is to say don't just look to your government don't just look to your health services to be the solution this is something that we can all participate in and make a difference we all have a responsibility for the mental health and welfare of those around us and we need to take some responsibility for that too yeah uh steve the last question i want to ask is you know kind of in that vein of celebrating jordan's life um if you could share with us um you know a story or a great memory so we can all kind of take his spirit and uh you know something that represents his spirit and kind of add that to our life for those of us that didn't have the pleasure of meeting him okay well i think probably pretty well everybody uh, listening to, to to your show here on will be familiar with batman um and uh, i remember in one of the readings at uh, we had two funerals for jordan one of the readings we had over in the northwest um 
there where he was brought up, uh, one of his very close friends um, got up and, and told us stories about Jordan. And uh, they, they shared this particular story uh, of uh, all the lads being out on uh, uh, take, having a few beers in Leeds locally where, where they lived. And uh, they were all dressed as superheroes and several of them as Batman with the Batman mask on. Uh, well, Jordan, you know, he, he would always commit to, to anything really in, in life. And he, he committed to the character. And throughout that afternoon, the only response he would give to any comment or question was, I'm Batman. So he gets on the bus, apparently, and his mate says, yeah, we, you know, however much we want to go to here. And the guy on the bus there looked at Jordan and said, yeah, yeah where, where to, mate? And he just said, I'm Batman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it gives you a little bit of an indication of, yeah. uh, you know, um, Jordan's spirit, I think, yeah. and, uh, you know, his mates just fell about, you know. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, there, there's there's Jordan for you. He was really Batman all along. Yeah, but, uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, Steve, I, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on. Um, for anyone that wants to support your work or what you're doing um, with the Jordan Legacy, what's the best way to help out? Yeah, straight to the website, Anna. Thank you for that. And it is the jordanlegacy.com sounds good uh, well steve uh thank you for for you know um what you do um i know it can't be easy um but it's it's powerful work and um you're helping a lot of lives you know um with what you're doing and and talking about it and destigmatizing it and and providing your knowledge so um thank you for what you're doing and uh um yeah thank you like likewise Arnav, and thank you for the invitation really appreciate the opportunity